come this evening to a consideration of the fifth verse in the seventh chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And really we must go on to verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that in order that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now these two verses, as I say, really go together and constitute one statement. The first in verse 5 is the negative aspect or the negative half of the statement. And then in verse 6 you have the positive half. And obviously here in this statement the apostle is giving an explanation of something that he's already said. The fifth verse begins with the word for. And that at once lets us know that he's going to give an explanation. And he's giving us an explanation of what he has just said in verse 4, which we've been considering. Wherefore, my brethren, you also became dead to the law, or died to the law, by the body of Christ, that in order that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, in order that ye should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, he is going to tell us why this marriage to Christ was an absolute necessity and why, incidentally, it was necessary prior to that that we should be dissolved from the marriage tie to the law which had gone before. Now, that's what he's doing in these two verses, this fifth verse and the sixth verse which follows. It's a very important statement for this reason. The remainder of this seventh chapter, from verse 7 to the end, and indeed on into, verse, into chapter 8, is nothing but an elaboration of this statement in verses 5 and 6. So that clearly we are dealing with a very vital and a very crucial statement. Here he puts it in general. This is why we had to die to our marriage to the law and be married to Christ. Here's the reason. He states it as a whole. And then you see from verse 7 he goes on to consider objections to this statement. And furthermore he also works out what he says here in very great detail in order to establish the statement to the full and beyond any doubt whatsoever. Very well. This is his method. We've seen it so often, haven't we? He makes a statement, then he takes it up and he works it out in detail, sums it up at the end. Now, here is the statement. Verses 5 and 6 are the key to the understanding of the whole of the seventh chapter of this epistle to the Romans. In this statement, therefore, uh, we find certain things, and this is why it is so essential to examine it. It is, first of all, essential to an understanding of the apostle's argument. There are so many people who get lost in this seventh chapter and get, become bewildered. Now, you'll never follow the apostle's argument in detail unless you are clear in your minds as to the general position and statement which he is here laying down. Secondly, this statement is absolutely essential to an understanding of the apostle's doctrine concerning the law. And that is, of course, very vital in this epistle as it is in the epistle to the Galatians. Here is really the central classical statement with regard to that matter. And then thirdly and obviously, this statement and the understanding of the statement is absolutely essential to the doctrine of salvation. And in this particular context, the doctrine of sanctification. He's already dealt with the law in the matter of justification, particularly here he's concerned about the law in the matter of sanctification. But of course it's right to say, as I've just said, that he does deal 
with the whole doctrine of salvation itself. And it is because people are not clear about this matter that they are confused from the very beginning to the end with respect to this whole matter. Well, now then, the best way, it seems to me, to approach it is this. We must look at the actual terms or expressions which the apostle uses. And the first, of course, is this expression, in the flesh. For, he says, or which we can translate like this, because when we were in the flesh, certain things were true of us. Now, what does he mean by saying that we were in the flesh? Here is the first use in this epistle of this term, <clears throat> the flesh, which is, of course, a great term in the epistles of this apostle. You find it from here on in this epistle, and you find it in the epistle to the Galatians. And, as you know very well, discussion has so often turned round the meaning of the term the flesh. There are different schools of theology which have come into being simply because of different interpretations of this expression in the flesh. And therefore it is one of those most important terms which we must be quite clear about. And uh, you will find that in the scripture that this term is used in a number of different ways. And that is of course why the confusion has tended to come in. The apostles, even an apostle like this, when he came to handle this great truth, suffered from the limitation of language. It is a constant difficulty in the exposition of Christian truth. Our terminology, our language is limited. And the same word is used in a number of different ways and has a different number of meanings. Let me show you what I mean. Take this word flesh. Sometimes the word flesh is used in the scripture to mean the whole of mankind. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then again, all flesh is as grass, and all the goodliness of men as the flower of grass. Now, flesh there simply means the whole of mankind. Therefore, there is one possible meaning. But then, at other times, the word flesh is used to mean the body. For instance, in that great statement in Galatians 2.20, the apostle says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life, he says, I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself for me. Well, now, obviously there, he is using the word flesh to mean the body. The life I now live in the body. And he is referring solely to the body, the bodily part of our being. So, it may mean the body. But then, in other places, the flesh obviously means the sensuous part of our nature. You will find this in many places. Take, for instance, in Galatians 5.16, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit lusteth against the flesh. Now, he's not talking about the body there. He's talking about something different. And that is this sensuous or sensual part of our being and our makeup. Something that is there, true, you see, in a believer. So, we must remember that it has that third possible use. Well, now then, the question that arises here is, is the word flesh in the flesh as it's used in our verse this evening? Is it to be explained in any one of those ways? Well, I think it's obvious that it isn't. He isn't referring to the whole of mankind. He is referring here, in particular, to what is true of Christian people. He's not making a general statement about the whole of mankind. He is saying that something was true of Christians which is no longer true of them. Again, obviously, he is not referring to the body, because when he wrote, he was still in the body. But he says, when we were in the flesh... We are no longer in the flesh. So it, again, it cannot mean the body. And we have to exclude that. And in the same way, we've got to exclude, as I think we shall see more and more as we go on with this chapter, 
that third possible explanation, namely the sensuous part of our being and of our nature. Well then, what is he referring to here? What is the particular connotation of the term in this fifth verse of the seventh chapter of this epistle to the Romans? Well, here we have, I think, we'll be able to see what is, after all, the commonest use of all of this particular term. And indeed, the very context explains what it does mean. It means the opposite to life in the spirit. We were in the flesh, but we are no longer in the flesh. Where are we now? Then, Well, now we are in the spirit. We were in the realm of the flesh. We are now in the realm of the spirit. Now, I read that section from the chapter 8, because there the apostle really does make it perfectly clear. Listen to it again from verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh. Well, how then? After the spirit. Then, they that are after the flesh, to mind the things of the flesh, they are that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Then I go on to take it up again in verse 8. So then, he says, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So I say the obvious meaning of in the flesh means that it's the opposite to being in the spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any men have not the spirit of, God, of Christ, he is none of his. Now, surely that establishes the meaning here quite clearly. To be in the flesh means not to be in the spirit. This is a most important term, therefore, most important definition. Perhaps the clearest statement of it of all is to be found in our Lord's uh, talk with Nicodemus. In the third chapter of John's Gospel, you'll find this in the sixth verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's it. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus couldn't see why. And that's the answer. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's no use you're asking questions, says our Lord to Nicodemus in effect. You are trying in your fleshly condition, in the flesh, with your natural mind, you're trying to understand what I'm talking about, but you can't do it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but this is born of the spirit, and this is something spiritual. So don't marvel that I said unto thee, you must be born again. If you like, therefore, we can say that to be in the flesh is to be unregenerate. Unregenerate. It is the natural state of man in sin, in which sin has dominion over him. It means that the evil principle of sin is controlling the whole of his life. It means that he has a corrupt nature. He hasn't the new life, he hasn't the new nature. It's the old nature, the old corrupt nature. Man unregenerate, in sin, under the dominion of sin, and polluted. Now, there is no doubt at all, but that an alternative term, if you're interested in it, is the term carnal. As you know, there's a great deal of confusion about this term carnal. It figures in people's doctrine of sanctification. They say a man, first of all, is unregenerate, then he becomes converted, and at that stage he's only carnal. Then he gets a further experience and he becomes spiritual. But surely the eighth chapter of this epistle makes it quite clear that that's a very wrong use of the term carnal. Did you notice there in chapter 8 how the apostle puts it? Let me read it again to you. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. That's the thing they're interested in. But they that are after the spirit mind the things of the spirit. For, because, to be carnally minded. And that's obviously exactly the same as to be after the flesh. And to mind the things that are after the flesh, to be carnally minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded, there's the opposite, 
spiritual and carnal, spiritual or flesh. Carnal and carnally minded are identical and synonymous with being in the flesh. Because, he goes on to say, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Well, then that obviously cannot be a Christian. And to be carnally minded means you're unregenerate. So he goes on to say, so then, they that are in the flesh, in other words, they that are carnal and are carnally minded, cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, you are not carnal, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Ah, yes, says somebody, that's all right. But what about 1 Corinthians 3? where the apostle starts by saying this, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Then in verse 3, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? What of that? Well, it seems to me there's only one thing to say about it. What the Apostle is clearly teaching is that as long as you are doing this sort of thing, says the Apostle, you are still behaving as if you were still carnal people. The moment we are converted, we don't suddenly see everything clearly and perfectly. We are no longer in the flesh, we are already in the spirit, but our understanding is defective. And those Corinthians were still thinking in this particular matter as if they were still unregenerate. He says, look here, you're behaving still in that old way. But the basic definition of carnal, obviously, is this one in the eighth chapter of this epistle to the Romans. And we therefore must explain 1 Corinthians 3 in terms of this rather than the other way around. Here the apostle is using the terms interchangeably. And therefore this is obviously, I say, the basic definition. And bearing that in mind, the other resolves itself quite simply. He says, you're babes, and you're babes because in this matter you're still thinking as you used to think. Very well. Well, now then, there is the main meaning, clearly, of in the flesh in our verse this evening. But it surely has another meaning also. Because you notice that the Apostle not only contrasts being in the flesh and in the spirit, but also contrasts it with being under the law or not under the law. Indeed, the answer to the definition of the flesh in verse 5 is given in verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law. We were, you see, under the law, but we've been delivered from it. Well, when we were under the law, we were in the flesh. So it carries the double meaning. Being in the flesh means also to be under the law. Now the apostle uses it in exactly the same way in Galatians 3.3. 3. Having begun in the spirit, he says, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? You remember the trouble in the Galatians was that they had listened to those false Judaistic teachers who came round and said, yes, it's all right, you believe the gospel, but that doesn't put you right as Christians. You've got to be circumcised also. You've got to carry out certain parts of the law. No, no, says Paul. Having started in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? And he means by in the flesh, by going back to those old rules and regulations which were under the law. That, then, is the meaning of this term flesh, that it, it carries the dual meaning of our being not in the spirit and of our positively being under the law. Now, there is a very good statement of all this in Philippians 3.3, 3, where, again, the apostle is dealing with this whole question of the Judaizers. He says, we are the circumcision. Don't listen to these people who are trying to circumcise you. He says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. What does he mean by in the flesh there? Well, I think he means exactly the two things which have come out in this fifth verse of this seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. 
He says, we have none of the self-confidence that we had when we were in the flesh. Confidence in birth, confidence in race, confidence in tribe, and also confidence in good religious works under the law, as regards the dictates of the law, perfect. All that means having confidence in the flesh. Confident in the ability that I can, by keeping the law, justify myself before God. Very well then. Here the apostle, I say, is anxious to emphasize both meanings of this term, in the flesh. When we were in the flesh, we were not in the spirit, and we were under the law. Now it's important for us to notice that he says that that is universally true of the whole of mankind which is unregenerate. It doesn't matter how good people may be, it doesn't matter how moral they may be, it doesn't matter how religious they may be. If they are not in the spirit, they are in the flesh. And at the same time, as we saw in verse 4, they are under the law. So that I can put it like this, that there are only two possible positions. Everybody in this world at this moment is in one of these two conditions. They are either in the flesh and under the law, or else they are in the spirit and are under grace. Now, he has already said that in verse 14. He says, of the sixth chapter, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, these terms must be taken together. And uh, it is very important that we should understand this. You see, if we identify flesh in this verse as meaning the body and the sins of the body only, we are going to confuse the whole issue. Because there are certain people who are not guilty of these flagrant sins of the body. And therefore they would say of them, ah, they are not in the flesh, but they are in the flesh. The best moral man in the world tonight who is not a Christian is in the flesh. Now, if you want a verse that really puts this distinction quite perfectly, you will find it in the epistle to the Ephesians, in the second chapter, and in the third verse, where the apostle uses the word flesh in the two different senses, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now then, you see that last use of flesh, where he talks about fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, there the flesh means the sensuous part of our nature. But when he uses the flesh in the first instance, in talking about the lusts of our flesh, he is talking about everybody. The lusts of the flesh can be subdivided into the lusts of the sensuous part of the nature and the lusts of the mind. There, I think, is a very good way of seeing the difference between those two particular meanings of the term. Well, now then, let's, let's leave it by putting it like this. We were, says the apostle, in the flesh. We were unregenerate. We were dominated by an evil principle of sin. We were under the dominion of sin. And at the same time, we were under the dominion of the law. For the strength of sin, as he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of sin is the law. Now then, here is the thing to glory. And you notice what he says? We were in the flesh. Thank God we are no longer there if we are Christians. We are no longer in the flesh if we are Christians. We are in the Spirit. We are under grace. We have been translated into an entirely new realm. Well, there's our first term. Let me hurry to the second term. The motions of sins. Here's an interesting term. What's he mean? Passions. Affections. Sinful affections and lustings. 
Now you notice what he says. When we were in the flesh, these passions, lustings, affections of sins which were within us. Now these are in all of us by nature. Every one of us. There has never been a human being since the fall but that these motions, passions of sins were in them. That is the result of the fall of men. Now here once more I have to remind you of a very important distinction. When he talks about the passions or the motions of sins, he does not mean the natural appetites in and of themselves. So many Christians have gone astray over that. You will remember how the Apostle Paul in writing to Timothy, for instance, in the first epistle in chapter 4, puts it like this. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Here were people who claimed to be ultra-spiritual. And they said they were so spiritual that they could never dream of getting married. Why? Well, sex is sinful. It's a bodily appetite. And they didn't eat meat for the same reason. But you see, the apostle condemns that. And it should be condemned utterly and absolutely. All the natural appetites have been created by God, given to us by God. That's his teaching, as it's the teaching of the Bible everywhere. And for us to regard the natural appetites as sinful in and of themselves is grievous error. And this is a truth which needs to be tremendously emphasized. Take, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church with their so-called celibate priesthood. Their priests don't get married. Why? Well, it's because they've gone wrong at this point, you see. That's a false asceticism which regards the body and its appetites as inherently sinful. It's just a denial of the scriptural teaching, and it's a very serious misunderstanding. No, no. There is nothing wrong with the natural appetites in and of themselves. God put them in men for the purposes of procreation, for the filling of the world with people and all hunger instinct, protective instinct and all these, they're there given by God for the well-being of men and for the replenishing of the earth. Very well, then what does he mean by the passions of sins? Oh, he means the natural appetites which are good in and of themselves, but as they have become as the result of the fall and of sin. You see, as God made men, he made him with these natural appetites. Yes, but... Uh, before men fell, he kept them in their place. There was a balance in men's life. The moment men sinned, the balance was upset. And instead of man controlling his appetites, the appetites began to control him. That's what he means. The thing we are seeing so much in the world today. The natural appetites, I say, are a part of men, yes, but you know they were never meant to be front-page news in the newspapers, were they? Sex is created by God, but not in the way you see it in your newspapers. That's the thing. It's become controlling, dominant, it's the big thing. Men live to eat today. They live to indulge their sex. That's where it's gone wrong. The thing itself is all right, as long as it's kept in its place, governed by the intellect, the understanding, by a sense of righteousness, and by our relationship to God. All to the glory of God. But when man reverses it all, and is dominated by these drives, these passions, these lusts, well, there he is in a sinful state. There he is in the flesh. Now then, that is the apostle's teaching. A term that is used to express the same thing in the scriptures sometimes is inordinate affections. Affections are all right, but they must never become inordinate. 
The moment they become inordinate, they are sinful. If you like, here's a good translation of the passions of sins. The feelings that prompt us to the commission of sins. That's what they mean. These passions or affections of sins. Any feeling that you have that is driving you and prompting you and urging you to commit an act of sin. Very well. Now here is the extraordinary statement. The next term. The motions, the passions of sin, which were by the law. This is the most remarkable statement in many ways that this apostle ever made. It isn't the most glorious, I say it's the most remarkable. Coming especially from one who'd been a Pharisee of the Pharisees and such an expert on the law. But he says that the motions of sins which were by the law, be clear about that word by, it really means through, through the law. What does he say? Does he say here that it is the law that has given being to the passions of sins? No. He is not talking about their origin. He is not talking about their existence. What he is saying is this, that the law stirs them up, arouses them, in a sense inflames them. That is his statement. These motions of sins that are in us, now as the result of the law, or through the law, they begin to do something. What do they do? Well, let's look at it again. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sins which were by the law did work in our members. Let's look at this word work. It's a very interesting word. It carries in it the notion of working powerfully. Not just working, but working powerfully. Again, you'll find the same word used in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 2, where I've been quoting. Listen to the apostle. He says, You were the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, he says, we all had our conversation in times past. We walked, he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It's exactly the same word. That's how we lived, he says. We, had, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. These evil spirits which are surrounding us, which we don't see, but which are controlling us and controlling so much of life. It works. This spirit of iniquity is working. Well, he says that the motions of sins work in exactly the same way in this unregenerate person. And oh, let me give you another illustration of this word. Take that great statement in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out, he says, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you. That's the word. It is God that worketh in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. And when God works, he works powerfully. God can't work in any other way. It is God that worketh. You know, when he says, work out your own salvation, it isn't the same word. It's a much weaker word. Work it out. But God worketh, and he uses this powerful word. It carries that meaning, and the other meaning it carries is that it does so inwardly. And here you see is this description of men in sin and regenerate men with these passions and affections and lusts of sin working inwardly powerfully within him. How true it is. Where do they work? Well, he says they work. They worked in our members. I needn't keep you with this. We defined it several times in working our way through chapter 6. You remember how we saw it there in verse, uh, verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, neither yield ye your members as instruments. And we defined it as meaning all our faculties. Not the body only, but the whole of our faculties. Mind, imagination, interest. Everything through which a man expresses himself and his personality. That's what's meant by members. So what he means is this, you see. 
These sinful, lustful feelings were working within us and working on our expression, our forms of expression, in order to bring forth fruit unto death. Let us remember that it is not confined to outward actions. Would to God that it were. But the members, as I've said, include the mind and the imagination as well as the body. So they may work in the mind and in the imagination. A man may sin in thought and sin in imagination quite as much as in the body. Our Lord has settled that, isn't he, forever in Matthew 5:28, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust hath already committed adultery with her in his mind and in his heart. Well, here it is, working in our members, these, pa these passions, these affections, these lusts, these drives of sin. There we were, he says. They were working, getting our members to act. We sinned in mind, in imagination, in heart, in body. And what was the result of all this? He says it was fruit unto death. You notice the contrast? At the end of verse 4, he says that we are married to Christ, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. But before we spent our time in bringing forth fruit unto death, death is personified for the moment in order to emphasize the thing. And of course it is the simple truth that all sinful actions lead always and only unto death. That's the terrible thing about the life of sin. It's a life of death. That's why Philip Doddridge put it in the hymn we've just been singing, who he said would grudge to part with ashes. Ashes. The life of the men of the world tonight, the sinful life leads to ashes. He burns himself out. There's nothing left at the end but the ashes the remnants, the ruins of a life. Death. The author of the epistle puts it quite, of the epistle to the Hebrews, puts it quite clearly. He's contrasting the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, and this is what he says in chapter 9 in verse 14. How much more, he says, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from what? From dead works. Dead works. To serve the living God. All the actions of sin are dead. And they lead to nothing but death. Oh, I mustn't stay with this. But if there's anybody in this congregation who isn't regenerate and doesn't know that he or she is in the spirit, let me tell you that all you're doing is just leading to death. It leads to moral death. Death of the moral sensibilities. You'll get coarser and coarser and duller and duller. And all that is fine in you will become gradually extinguished. And you'll be left as an exhausted hulk or as a heap of ashes. Moral death. Yes, and spiritual death. All these activities mean the death of the spirit. When men rebelled and sinned against God, he died a spiritual death. You were he quickened to were dead in trespasses and sins, quite, spiritually dead. And all the works of a dead man are dead works, spiritually dead. Yes, but it also leads to physical death. I'm simply recapitulating what I said on chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Physical death is included. Man would never have died if he hadn't sinned. He wasn't meant for death. It was sin that produced his physical death. And finally, and on top of all, and most serious of all, the second death. The second death. For all who are not in the spirit who are out of Christ, will not only die physically, they will be consigned to a second death, which will go on to all eternity. Those who are in Christ, those who are in the Spirit, 
we'll never experience the second death. That is final, eternal separation from God and his glorious life. Well, now then, there are our terms. Shall I sum up the doctrine as we close? Here it is. What does this verse teach us? Well, the first thing it teaches us is the true and the terrible nature of sin. What a terrible thing sin is. What a terrible power sin is. You see, the modern popular psychological view is that sin is only something negative. That it's only the absence of good qualities. The popular psychologists don't like the term sin. They don't believe it. They say sin isn't positive. A man isn't positively sinful. It's just the absence of certain good qualities. No, no, says Paul. The motions of sin. The passions of sin. And there are other psychologists, you see, who are wise enough to see that. They talk about these drives that are within us. And you know, the natural man is absolutely helpless in their grip. He's completely helpless. They're controlling him. They're mastering him. They're driving him. And did you notice that it's as powerful as this? That it has the ability even to frustrate, as it were, the law of God. The power of sin in the unregenerate man is so strong that the law of God can't deliver him. It does the opposite, says Paul. It produces, it aggravates the, the passions and the motions and the lusts. It makes them work in the members more than before. Now he's going to work that out in great detail from verse 7 onwards, but he's stating it all in principle here. There is nothing more fatal than not to realize the terrible power of sin. Sin is the next greatest power to God himself. The passions of sins. It's so powerful, I say, that though God gives a holy law, it can't deliver us. There's the first thing. The second, therefore, is this. It shows us, doesn't it, this verse, the limited scope and value of the teaching of morality. There's a great deal of moral teaching today. And it looks to me as if we are going to have more and more. It seems to me that the present Home Secretary is entirely guided by this idea. It's his advisors who are putting it to him. I've no doubt about that at all. But you see, they're going to reform the prison still more. They're going to treat the prisoners psychologically. And it's all based on a failure to realize the truth about sin. It's all really a failure to understand Romans 7, 5. They really believe that you can solve the problem of crime and juvenile delinquency and all these sins that are multiplying so rapidly by just doing away with punishment, speaking nicely, persuading people, encouraging them. The astounding thing is, of course, that they're still saying things like that in spite of what we know to be true of society today. They've long since abolish punishment in the schools, of course. And we are seeing the consequences. Punishment has been abolished from the family, and we are seeing the consequences there. We are witnessing an increasing lawlessness, but they won't believe it. They're going to do more of it. They're going to multiply these educational aspects of the prisons and so on. And you're going to be nice and kind, and these people will respond. They can't respond. They're, they're incapable of response. Why? The motions of sins. The motions of sins are too powerful. It can't be done. Why the most tender appeals of a father or a mother or a wife or children are not enough. The power of sin is beyond them all. And yet they're relying on this kind of thing. Morality teaching is speaking generally a sheer waste of time. The best it can ever do is to frighten certain timorous people against certain particular sins. It'll do nothing more. It won't change the heart. It won't change the desire. It won't change the man. But you see, it's even worse than that. According to the Apostle's teaching here, it may be a positive danger. An actual danger. Why? Well, because it inflames the passions. It encourages them. It stimulates them. To the pure, all things are pure. But uh, to them that are disobedient and unbelieving is nothing pure. 
Nothing at all. Everything becomes defiled. I've known many a men, I knew quite a number when I was a student, who said they were reading certain books because they thought they'd help them and strengthen them in the fight, the moral fight. And they were honest enough, many of them, to admit and to confess that they'd done them great harm. A minister of religion once told me that the book that had done him the greatest harm in his own personal life was a book called The Mastery of Sex. Avoid them, my friends. They'll do you more harm than good. Because of this, you see, the motions of sins are inflamed by the law. The very law that prohibits them encourages us to do them. Because we are impure to start with. So morality teaching can even be a positive danger. By teaching these children about sex and by warning them against the consequences of certain actions, what you're really doing is to introduce them to the whole subject. And of course they greatly enjoy it. Their curiosity is aroused and they'll want to read further books. You're probably doing them grievous harm. Now that's a strong statement, isn't it? But I am here to assert that the Victorian attitude towards sex in practice was more successful than the present day. More successful. I'm not here to defend Victorianism, but I am here to expand the scripture. And the scripture says the thing is too dangerous. If they were pure, if they were innocent, all right, then you could do it. But they're not. They're impure. These motions of sins are there. And the more you tell them, the more you'll arouse an interest and a desire. Be careful, my friends. The way to overcome sin is not to teach morality. It is to preach the gospel. Very well, there is the second thing we are told here. But let me come to the third, and with the third, which is this, that the real, we are told about the real function and purpose of the law, and in particular the law of Moses. It was never meant to save. Never meant to save. God never gave the law to the children of Israel in order that they might save themselves by it. It was their crass misinterpretation of it that ever led them to think that. It couldn't, because what it does is to aggravate the passions of sins. Well, why was it ever given? It was given, as we've seen at the end of chapter 5, the law entered that the offense might abound. It was given to define sin, to bring it out in its real nature, and to show the need of a savior. The Jews and the Pharisees in particular had gone completely wrong about that. The law was never intended by God as a way of salvation. It was simply to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. So that brings me to my last word. This verse, in a most amazing manner, and perhaps from the negative side, more powerfully than any verse you'll find in the whole of Scripture, shows the utter, absolute necessity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. Don't you see it? Having shown us the depth of sin, and the complete inability of the law to deliver from it. Indeed, the fact that the law even aggravates it. Even giving of the law of God can't save a man. What then can save him? And there is only one answer. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work on our behalf. It is because the whole of mankind was in the flesh. And because it was in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work powerfully within us. And in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. That the Son of God left the courts of heaven and was born as a babe in Bethlehem and gave perfect obedience to the law and took our sins in his own body on the tree was dead and buried and rose again. It was because of this he came. He had to come. There was no other way. This verse proves it. The condition of man was such that nothing and no one else could save. 
thou must save, and thou alone. And thank God he does. He delivers us from the flesh and puts us into the Spirit and the Spirit into us. And thereby we are joined to him and the power of his might, which is more powerful even than the motions, the passions of sin. Thank God for so great a salvation which gives us so great a deliverance. Amen. O Lord our God, we turn unto thee in humble praise and thanksgiving as we realize this glorious truth. O God, it grieves us to think of what sin and the fall have made of the whole of of the human race. We realize that we were all once there. But we thank thee, O God, that we can say that we were there, but we are no longer there. By thy blessed, wondrous grace, O Lord, receive our humble and unworthy praise and enable us to see this truth so clearly that we shall become lost in wonder, love, and praise. Oh, open our eyes to it, that we may see what in thy love and mercy thou hast done for us through Jesus Christ, thy blessed Son, and our Lord and Saviour. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.